This is the Public Record Podcast, a public service of the Public Record, the Coachella Valley's Business News Weekly. I'm Managing Editor Ken Allen. Well, my guests today are Michael Shaw and Clark Duggar from Desart Performs. I remembered how to say that right, Michael. <laughs> Their uh, website is desartperforms.org. How did you come up with the name? Um, it was bestowed upon us. <laughs> um, 14 years ago, my husband Clark was asked to stand in for a stage manager on a one-person show that was being done in an art gallery. Prior to that... We had become friends with the gallery owners because we were remodeling our home here in Palm Springs. Over the course of our friendship, we learned that they wanted to kind of create a salon atmosphere in the gallery and include like performance art or comedy. So they wanted to kind of broaden their space into something not just visual arts, but something on, on the performance arts level. And they had commissioned a young actress to write a one-woman show and they were going to premiere it there. Long story short, Clark got roped into stage managing for this one-woman show one and, night. And mind you, I had no idea what what stage managing even meant back then, so I said, oh, sure, I'll be happy to help he out. He just thought he would be, like, <laughs> sweeping the floors or something. But no he idea. like, run the lights and all this. And I was still in Los Angeles working, and I came out to see Clark play stage manager, which I found fascinating because I'd never seen him do this. And I thought, well, this is just going to be fun watching him try to run lights for a show. And he wasn't a theater person. So I met Daniela, the young actress who was doing this show, and we became quick, fast friends. I loved her work. I loved her writing. I loved her performing as an actress. And we kind of started talking about, like, if the gallery wants to start bringing in more performing arts kind of things, maybe we could help them do that. And so we created a chapter of the art gallery called Desert Performs. The art gallery's original name was Desert One Gallery. So the gallery was mm -hmm. Desert One Gallery. And we created the moniker that was Desert Performs. And under that umbrella, Desert Performs included uh, comedy, poetry readings, and staged play readings. And so we did that for probably three or four years in the gallery until the gallery had to close its doors as a result of 2008 and that whole crash that happened with the housing bubble. So to answer your question, we are Desert Performs as a result of Desert One Art Gallery. And are you a 501c3? We are. So you can we are. take we donations. Are you currently looking for any benefactors to provide any uh, support in some way or another? Well, well a huge <laughs> smile comes over both yeah, of our faces. That, that we spend a good deal of our time doing that very exact thing. Many people don't realize that our earned income accounts for 50% or less of our budget. Ah. So we must supplement the rest of our budget with 50 and sometimes up to 60% through grants and donations because otherwise we'd have to charge $65, $80 a ticket. And this market would never sustain that. Our work that I that I seek out is usually from the larger markets out of New York and Chicago. I'm attracted to the work that's being done off and off off Broadway, and then in such markets as Seattle. Seattle has some of the best theater, as does Chicago, obviously. And I will look to those those theater communities for the latest work that's coming out of those communities and bring those to Palm Springs. And uh, over the years, we've done four Pulitzer Prize winning plays and a number of premieres. Um, and that's what really what we 
we really do well. How did you determine that's a good fit for the demographics of the Coachella Valley? You know what's funny? I didn't determine that. I just <laughs> brought it here, and it and um, it's it's almost like Field of Dreams. I mean, build it, and they will come. And I truly believe that that's what's happened. Yeah, because Ken, I will tell you that over the years, um, our audiences have grown pretty consistently, at least over the last three or four years. And I think that in part that is because people. Uh, know the kind of work that we do and seek us out. Give us the lay of the land, the helicopter view of local live theater uh, other than concerts. Who are some of the other theater groups in the Valley and where do you fit into that matrix? Well, interestingly enough, there's eight or nine local theater companies. The community is very small. We're all friends. We try to support each other by going to each other's shows, which can be challenging because we're all on the same schedule. We all have a seasonal you know, um, calendar to live by. But because as a result of COVID, we ended up forming what is called the Alliance of Desert Theaters. And it was an answer to the fear of, oh my God, what are we going to do now that we can't do theater? And we supported each other and have continued to support each other this last year and a half by meeting every other week on Zoom to find out, like, how are you dealing with this? What are the latest grants? How are you guys surviving? What are you doing for COVID safety protocols in your theater? This last year and a half has been survival. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in survival mode. So those theaters that have come together and formed this alliance, you know, include, you know, the Palm Canyon Theater. At the India Performing Arts Center, there's Desert Theater Works. Uh, on the professional level, we have CV Rep, which is Coachella Valley Repertory out of Cathedral City. They're one of two equity theaters here in the Valley. We're, this, we're the other equity theater. Most of the theaters in the Valley are community theaters. Desert Rose, they um, are an LGBTQ theater-centric company whose you know audience, obviously, is the LGBT community and their allies. What other theaters? Desert Ensemble. Desert Ensemble. Just, uh, we actually shared our theater space with Desert Ensemble for a number of years, and they just found a new home over at the Camelot at the Palm Springs Cultural Center. Mm -hmm. uh, so in Palm Springs alone, we have like an immediate you know, four or five theater companies. How do you go about casting? You mentioned your actors' equity. So I normally hold general auditions in June locally. And then if I'm not able to cast from the pool out here, I do go to Los Angeles and I hold auditions in Los Angeles, which attracts San Diego and Orange County actors who come up. I'll do auditions there two or three days, usually in Burbank. What are the challenges with dealing with union talent? I have an obligation under our contract to cast a certain number of equity actors. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is, especially now, because our shows are very small because of COVID, we have to do testing every week for the entire company, and it's an expense that we've had to put into our budget. Well, let me also add, equity has very, very strict guidelines that we are required to follow because we're an equity theater, and we are required to test everyone in directly involved with the production twice a week. We are required to have what they call a COVID safety manager whose sole job is to be present whenever the actors are present, whether it's a rehearsal or uh, a performance. We just paid to have the theater we're in checked for ventilation, which was a very expensive proposition. And that again is required by equity. And, and we've been told by others 
that the requirements that equity is stipulating is stricter than most hospitals. So these are the unique challenges that we've never obviously had to deal with until now. And so gearing up to get back into live theater hasn't been just let's rehearse and put on a show. It's being able to make sure that we have the resources to do that under our obligation as a union house. So about two years ago, we had some changes in our California law that uh, most of us remember from the Uber-Lyft fiasco, but it also affected anyone employing independent contractors, and apparently it had a severe impact on small theaters like yours. How did you deal with the independent contractor issue? What most people perhaps don't realize is that just about all small theater companies hired their crew and most of their actors as an independent contractor, and that has now gone away. And the thing that's important to understand is it's not that we want to not pay these people what they're worth. They're worth, you know, more than we can afford. So it has impacted all small theaters in California. I sit in on the L.A. theater groups that meet once a week, and they talk about how they're scaling back their productions, they're scaling back the number of actors. One theater said that they probably won't do anything next year because they just can't see how they can afford it with um, this new requirement that really came about around the same time the pandemic hit. So those two things got mushed together in a sense, and people thought, well, you know, you're not doing a production because of the pandemic. And now that we are coming out of the pandemic, people are beginning to really realize the full impact that this has on small theater. There was actually legislation that I was involved in helping to push through the state legislature to... Uh, find relief for small theater companies uh, in the form of additional funding to help support them. Uh, There was a a state senator who sponsored the bill for us, and it made it almost all the way uh, up to uh, the governor's office, but it was vetoed. And -hmm. it was vetoed for two reasons. Number one is that they did pass a one-time only $50 million relief for small theaters. And so the misunderstanding that I think some people have, even in the legislature, is that, oh, well, you got your money. What's the problem? Well, the the legislature that was vetoed, the goal of that was to have that extend over several years, if not indefinitely, to provide ongoing relief for small theaters. Is there any way for the local temp agencies like Scion, Robert Half, to be the employer for those folks? Musicians come and go, and they're, the musicians are gig workers. They like, I got a gig at this place, and I'm playing at this restaurant. You know, they're very transient. They just kind of they got hop from job to job to job. If you hire them for a show and they're playing for more than one or two performances, they have to become staff members. So every person who comes in or in, in through our doors are now have to be we fill out the paperwork. We install them into the payroll system. We have to put them on a pay schedule. And it create it, it, it's very complicated, time-consuming, and um, just we just don't have the resources to maintain that. Sure. And they lose, you know, independent contractors lose because as an actor for 40-plus years, you go into a show and your makeup is written off. I mean, your expenses just to maintain your craft – become expendables. Well, if you're an employee, you don't get to do that anymore. Oh. That goes away because you're 
you're not 1099'd anymore. This has been an incredible journey, Ken. I will tell you that. Oh, boy. Let's go back to curating the uh, plays again. Do you commission original works? In the past, when we were just starting and just gearing up, we only looked at unpublished new work because it was an answer to a call. I had a lot of friends in Los Angeles who were playwrights, and we thought, well, this is a great way to get their work up on its feet, you know? And so we started doing just unpublished work. We had a playwright festival and... It was really a lot of fun uh, just in discovering new new plays that way. And then uh, gradually we've, we've evolved because we had to build audience. And, and then, then we start building our audience based on the fact that they're like, oh, my God, I saw that in Chicago. I want to see it again. You know, and we get that a lot. We get people going, oh, my God, I saw this in New York. And we're so glad that you brought it here to the desert. It was one of our favorite plays ever on New, in, you know, in New York, and it won the Obie Award for something, you know. So um, – I look for work that is um, very obviously well-written, has a very strong message, but um, at the end of the day, you always walk out of our theater, and our, our patrons kind of know this about us. Um, they'll walk out and they're like, wow, I didn't expect that. <laughs> you know, and that's one of the best things to hear. It's like, oh, man, you got me. I had no idea that was going to happen, and I love that. So, Michael, and, and, over all this time has... Clark evolved from not knowing what a stage manager is to <laughs> being an expert. Um, well, a very, a very uh, quick, quick story is when we uh, did our first production back at the art gallery, and this is going back 14 years ago, about two weeks before that opened, Michael said, asked if I would be the stage manager. And I didn't know what a stage manager's job was. So I thought, isn't that, that's just so charming that he's giving me this this job. I don't really know what it is. And then about two or three days before the show opened, he says, now you realize that the stage manager is running the show. And I said, what? I'm not doing that. And, so you're the boss. And yeah, you know? I, I figured that the person who was directing, you know, the production would just continue to direct the production during the, during the performances. Needless to say, that was the last time that I was the stage manager. He's never stage manager since. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but what he does do is, because he comes from film, um, he brings a lot to the table for us technically. Um, he does a lot of our sound design, and he's our technical director um, and our president of the board. And, you know, I mean, he does, he wears many... Yeah, I love, I love the technical aspect of things. Uh, we've done some, some video projections on our sets, which has been a real... A fun challenge to figure that out. And I love uh, sound effects and blending them into the production. Well, that would be a good segue for what I want to talk about a little later. But I want to talk about educational opportunities. What are you doing to cultivate talent in the desert? So um, probably six, seven years ago, I built a relationship with Palm Springs High School Drama Department. Mm -hmm. And we eventually just developed an internship program where we would bring in three or four students a season who would follow the professionals in our company, our set design, our lighting design people, our sound designers, uh, stage management, even directing. And they shadow and work alongside these professionals during production. And um, they build up points. And uh, at the end of the season, they become eligible for scholarships that they can then use to continue their education after high school. And we've had that program in place for, like I said, about six years 
one of our first lighting interns went on to just do incredible things at Berkeley. And now he's working as a professional lighting designer in the San Francisco area. It's an incredible experience for them and us because we get to see them grow. And the fact is that when I was in high school and then graduated from college, I couldn't wait to get out of my hometown. I just said, I'm like, I got to get out of here, you know? And that's what the kids have a tendency to do. And you let them go and you're like, be free, flourish, grow, have a wonderful life, but don't forget us. Because eventually I want them to come back, you know? Uh-huh. Exactly. So, Clark, you mentioned sound effects. Can we talk for a few minutes about my favorite series, your On the Air series? That was a huge joy for me because as a kid, I used to listen to old-time radio rebroadcasts uh, in the early 60s, and I always have loved old-time radio. We're sitting around one day thinking of what can we do to bring in some actors, maybe from Los Angeles, for a fundraiser that wouldn't require them to have to memorize a script wouldn't require any real set to speak of, wouldn't require any blocking. And so I said, well, what about the idea of doing old-time radio? And you did all of these at the main Camelot Theater, which seats about 525, I believe? It's it's now about, they put new seats in, it seats about 400. Okay. And the thing that was a thrill to me, that we did the sound effects live on the stage. Mm-hmm. And so we had one, and then some for some shows, two people who did nothing but make the sound effects. And of course, the audience gets to see them as they make those sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the last shows we did was a science fiction story, and I wanted a theremin. That's the instrument that you play mm-hmm. without actually touching it. And you should probably explain that, what a theremin is for that, yeah, people theremin, who don't know what it is. Theremin is a electronic instrument uh, that I don't know when it first came out, but it's, it's in the been early out for twenties. It's a, if you've ever seen yeah. the original "Day the Earth Stood Still," that's the principal yes. instrument. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Well, that's I love that love that film. I wanted to get a, a theremin, and you play these things by actually waving your hands in the air. One hand controls the volume. One hand controls the the the, the pitch. Yeah. And so you actually don't touch the device. <laughs> so we found a place locally here that had a theremin, and they let us. They were kind enough to let us borrow it for the show. And of course, then we had to teach our sound effects person <laughs> how do you oh, play yeah. this thing. They make modern and, versions of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yes. And so uh, that was just a, a delight. But uh, luckily, she didn't have to play a melody. She had to just make some just sound weird effects. sounds. Yeah, weird sounds, and it worked perfectly. I think it was the um, the long weekend. Was that the film that kind of established the sound of the theremin as the uh, sound cue for psychosis or a psychopathic uh, <laughs> behavior? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We enjoyed doing those shows, yeah. and we did a study, and we realized that the audience that came to the um, radio old time radio shows was not the same audience that came to our regular shows. Ah. There were two different audiences. And so we wanted to add, because at that time we were doing three regular productions and then the old-time radio show, and we wanted to add a fourth production to our, our package, our season, and we realized that we couldn't do four shows and the radio show. It was too much. It was just a lot of them. Yeah. So we decided to, to take a break from the old-time radio show and add a fourth show to our season. Have you considered doing a contemporary radio drama? You know, one of the more esoteric ones by Archibald MacLeish or uh, who was the one I mentioned the other day, uh, Edward Albee? 
Yeah, you know, we 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 didn't really consider that. One of the things that uh, we were swayed uh, in large part by was the, the man who directed those shows was Greg Oppenheimer. Is oh, Greg yeah. Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. who was the son of Jess Oppenheimer from I Love Lucy. From I Love yeah. Lucy, mm -hmm. and so he, of course, is a huge fan of old time radios. And what people didn't realize is there was a radio program uh, in the uh, late forties. In the, I guess into the early 50s, called My Favorite Husband. That's I, the pre precursor to I Love Lucy. Yeah. Right? Yes. And so we we did one of those, I think, probably every oh. year. And uh, it was In just, fact, many of those radio shows were reimagined for the I Love Lucy show, probably yes, half exactly. a dozen of them. Absolutely. Yeah. So any chance it'll come back? Sometime I'd in the future, always, I'd love to do there's it. I'd love to chance. do it. It's just, it's you know, there's, there's, there's just finding the time to, to, uh, to, to make it happen, and uh, the pandemic kind of threw a wrench into everything. And well, you both have been delightful guests. Thanks for sharing oh. some time with us. Thank you. Thank you. Good Ken. luck on a, on a high, uh, steep, high road you have to climb to get things out <laughs> on the stage. People watching the show from the seats have no idea what goes on behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, guys. we do, we do, uh, we do love our work, and um, we appreciate everybody's support. Um, this community, I will tell you, has stepped up yes. multiple times to make sure that we were able to come back, and we are able to come back because of that support. So, well, good luck with your new season. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Appreciate it. This has been the Public Record Podcast a public service of The Public Record, the Coachella Valley's Business News Weekly. I'm Managing Editor Ken Allen. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast with your friends and be sure to click the subscribe button.